I must begin with a confession, a confession that uh, I, who talk about courageous Christianity and not being afraid and things like that, I failed you not once but twice this morning. The first time when Miss Jocelyn sang, Precious Lord, I wanted to shout, sang that, and I bit my tongue, and I failed you this time because when the choir sang, Precious Lord, I wanted to shout, you better sing that choir. (laughs) And uh, I won't make that mistake again. And I hope none of us do. How how do you listen to that soaring song and not respond? We would have stood up and raised our hands and shouted and sang along. And it's okay, y'all. It is okay. Listen, I have a Presbyterian background too. I know we're proud of that frozen chosen reputation. (laughs) But for one Sunday, one Sunday, because I need help up here. I need help up here. What a weekend it's been. Uh, Thank you all who joined us yesterday. Uh, We had a good time talking about hard things. Amen? Amen. We had a good time talking about hard things. Because me, you know, Clover and I think when we share this, if we're going to do hard stuff, we got to try to make it fun. We got to try to make it enjoyable and and, and get through it. And so we had a good time. And the cherry on top, y'all, the good news this morning my unranked Notre Dame fighting Irish prevailed over the number four Clemson Tigers. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. I did struggle a lot with the message this morning. You want me to talk about history? I can do that. You want me to talk about ideologies like white Christian nationalism? We can do that. But you want me to get in the pulpit? It's a little bit more challenging for me, and especially for a congregation like this. Why? Because I spend most of my time trying to convince people who don't believe racism is a thing, that it is indeed a thing, and that they should do something about that thing. That's what I do. But what do you do with people who already realize that racism is an urgent problem? I realize I'm making some assumptions this morning. I hope I'm correcting those assumptions. And based on all my interactions so far, I think I am. I'm making the assumption that you're already on the journey toward justice. That if you haven't been in the book club yet, it's just because you didn't have enough time, but you're about to be in the next one, right? (laughs) I'm making the assumption that, 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 that somehow you, you realize that, that not only is racism a problem, but that you have a role to play in fighting against it. And so what do you say to people who are already on that journey? And so I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get better at not wrestling with these questions alone. So I asked around and I also asked the Holy Spirit. I said, God, what do you have me to say for these people? And the answer through other people and and through prayers has come back consistently again and again and again. And the word for you this morning is, don't forget Christ. In your journey toward justice, don't leave Jesus behind. 
Or in the words of our scripture passage this morning, don't forget, don't throw away your confidence. So let's talk about this theme of not throwing away our confidence. History is vast. I think one of the things that, that, that people kind of get wrong about history is that historians know every factoid you can bring up about history. I hate playing trivia games now because if it's a history question, you're like, oh, Jamari, you're a historian. You must have the answer. No, 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 no. History is big. And so we have to focus, right? So my focus is 1877 through the 20th century, looking specifically at race, religion, and social movements. I look at the long black freedom struggle. I look at the abolitionist movement. I look at uh, uh, the anti-lynching movement. I look at the civil rights and the black power movement. And that's my thing. So don't ask me about all this other stuff. I'm not going to know. And it's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be awkward for me and awkward for you. As I'm reading these hundreds of books about history, about these social movements... Historians, partly by nature of the discipline, they don't look deeply. They'll look at the race element. They'll look at the social movements element. They won't look as deeply at the religious element. And so they'll study these figures. They'll look at their activism. They'll look at their policy stances. But, but they won't really delve into the faith that animates their activism. And nowhere is this more clearly demonstrated than with the most well-known figure of this racial justice movement, Martin Luther King Jr. We often call him Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. With, without mentioning that he's the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We, also, we often picture him in like uh, the jail cell in Birmingham without necessarily picturing him in the pulpit at his church in Atlanta, right? Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian, but not in the abstract sense. He was a Christian who deeply believed in Jesus. And I'll never forget when I was studying the civil rights movement and reading more about MLK. By the way, for someone we talk so much about, very few of us have actually read a full biography of King. Very few of us actually studied his life. But as I was doing this reading, I'll, I'll never forget something that I came across. It was January 1956, just a few weeks after the Montgomery bus boycott had started, King had been thrust into this position as the spokesperson of the Montgomery Improvement Association, and he was already getting death threats. And one night he came home and he got another phone call. Later, he wrote about it. I want to read you what he wrote about that night. He said that... King got a phone call, and on this particular night, the caller said that King had three days to get out of town, or, quote, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. King looked at his daughter. He thought about his beloved wife, Coretta Scott King, and he couldn't go back to sleep. So he went to the kitchen. He made himself a cup of coffee, and this is how he remembers that night. He said, I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. 
You can't even call on mama now. You've got to call on that something in that person that your daddy used to tell you about, that power that can make a way out of no way. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee I never will forget. And I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. Here's what Martin Luther King Jr. said. Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I I think the cause we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm, I'm losing my courage. And I can't let the people see me like this because if they see me weak and losing my courage, well, they will begin to get weak. But the story doesn't end there. Martin Luther King went on to say, and then it happened. And it seemed at that moment I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still, fight on. That is what I call Martin Luther King Jr.'s kitchen table moment. A moment when he was facing fierce opposition, persecution. Threats not only on his life, but his family's life. Can you imagine? And what did he do in that moment? Call up his friends, say, I need you to stand around the house with your rifles and guard and protect my family. Bust out a book of of, of nonviolent protest strategy. He went to God in prayer, and in that prayer, on that night, he heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I believe that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. revisited that night probably again and again and again countless times in his 13 years as the symbolic head of the civil rights movement. Whenever the the opposition got acute, whenever he was feeling weak, whenever his courage was faltering, he remembered that solitary night alone with Jesus at the kitchen table. And he remembered the voice of Jesus and he gained strength. He gained confidence in the face of injustice. And so this passage from Hebrews is reminding us where our confidence comes from. If it was good enough for activists who fought for the abolition of slavery, it was good enough for activists who fought against lynching, it was good enough for activists who fought for voting rights and the fall of Jim Crow segregation, isn't it good enough for us? Isn't Jesus still good enough for us? Or have we gotten too good for Jesus? Do we know more about justice than Jesus? Can we pursue righteousness in our own power? And so this passage from Hebrews says, 
Don't forget your confidence. But before that, it says, remember. And I love it when the Bible says remember because I'm a historian. So that says we're going to go back. We're going to look at the history. And that passage says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light. When you endured great conflict full of suffering. Remember when you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Remember at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Remember that you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Remember that you knew in those times that you had a better inheritance coming. Remember, remember, remember. Remember, but sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget those earlier days. I think a lot of times we look at our Christian life and and we see Jesus as the doorway, but we don't understand that Jesus is the path too. You don't ever graduate from Jesus. And so we, we, we get in the door of Christianity and we say, okay, all right, it's up to me now. I got to do this. I got to figure this out. Not that we don't have to work, not that we don't have to labor, but, but, but we're not supposed to do it in our own power. And some of us, we, we, we feel weak right now. We, be, we feel tired. We feel discouraged. We feel so drained. We're not sure how we can keep up this justice work on top of just regular life. And maybe it's because we're, we have an over-reliance on self. Another reason we, we, we forget to remember is because of arrogance. Oh, y'all, it's so easy to show contempt for others who, 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 whose beliefs, whose actions are unjust. You remember that story from... The Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable about a a Pharisee and a tax collector. And I love the way Jesus introduces the parable. He says, this is to some who were confident of their own righteousness. This is for some who were confident of their own righteousness. And he said, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed to God, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I've got. Meanwhile, the tax collector stood at a distance and beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Now, who are we in this parable? So often in this journey toward justice, we can, we can succumb to arrogance, and Jesus addresses it to us, to some who were confident in our own righteousness. Oh, thank God I'm like, not like the people from that other political party. Thank God I'm like, not like that church across the street. Thank God I'm not like those people who believe lies and conspiracy theories. Thank God I'm not like them. I'm righteous. Or here's another thing I think that happens when we forget. When we throw away our confidence. It it doesn't often happen in these big, loud moments. 
A lot of times we throw away our confidence through silence. We get around other Christians. We do this work of justice. We assume we're all on the same page about Jesus, so we don't have to start with that. Let's skip to the good stuff. Let's talk about the action, the initiative, the strategy. How are we going to actually put our hands to the plow and do this work? And before you know it, you're not even saying Jesus' name. We're claiming to be Christians pursuing this work of justice, but we're not even talking about the Jesus who empowers it. And it doesn't happen all at once. Gradually, little by little. But before you know it, you're starting to get bitter. You're starting to get cynical. You look at this work and you're like... I don't think it's for me. I've, I've done my part. I've done a lot already. We're, you know, other people are doing stuff. I don't even really want to do it anymore. What's happened? You forgot your confidence. And even now, we're, we're, we're looking <laughs> two days away. We got these midterm elections. And the landscape's not looking great for people who want a multiracial democracy. And we're nervous and we're wringing our hands and we're wondering what's coming next and how are we going to survive and where is our nation going and what is the witness of Christians and all of that. But we're doing it all in our own power. We're, we're, we're trying to figure it out ourselves. We're trying to organize it ourselves. And, and, and when we left behind our confidence. But this passage tells us, remember I love how it starts. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. The light came on for you. It's telling you, remember when the light came on for you for justice? Remember when, when, when you were asleep and now you're finally awakened to the issues of racial justice in our day? Remember, for some of you, that was back in 2020. You saw George Floyd lying prone on the ground in Minneapolis with an officer's knee on his, deck, de- on his neck, literally dying in front of us. For some of you, it was hearing of Breonna Taylor, who was killed in her own home in the dark of the night. For some of you, it was Ahmaud Arbery, who, who, who was, a, was killed in broad daylight for the crime of jogging in a neighborhood where people thought he wasn't supposed to be. Remember when the light came on for you. Remember how eager you were to engage in the work. Remember how willing you were to suffer. Remember how, how, how you were willing to have the hard conversation. How you were willing to make the financial sacrifices. How you were willing to invest your time. Remember, remember, remember. Remember those earlier days. What I've sensed here at Montview is a genuine dedication to racial justice. A genuine desire, and not just the desire, but the commitment to do the right thing. And not just to be nice people, but to commit to changing systems and policies and structures 
And that's a beautiful thing. And, and, and what I sense is that if you stay on this path, others are going to hear about you. Others are going to learn about your reputation. And it may not be long before other Christians, other churches, other congregations come to you and say, what are you doing? Because you're doing something right and we want to learn from you. How did you structure the book study? What, what, what initiatives are you taking in your city? How are you discipling your people into this thing? And you will be in the position of sharing with others and being a guide because you're a little bit further along in your journey of justice than they are. And that's a wonderful position to be in. It's a heavy load of responsibility for sure. And I'm excited for you because the reality is there aren't enough churches who are in that position. And to be specific, there aren't enough predominantly white churches who are in that position. And there aren't enough historic predominantly white churches that are in that position. And there aren't enough historic predominantly white churches of means and with resources who are in that position. So I'm here as your cheerleader saying, get going. The marathon is on New York City Marathon. I'm on the sidelines saying, keep going. Yes. Yes, go, go. And I think the only way you could make a wrong turn, I think the only way you might stumble and fall in this journey is if you forget Jesus. We are confronting injustice. And we dare not do it in our own power. We are confronting injustice and we dare not do it timidly. Because I tell you, they're not timid about their injustice, are they? No, they're bold and loud and, and public about it, aren't they? But we would tiptoe, well, you know, I, th I think truth matters. I, 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 I think we shouldn't talk about other people this way. May I, may I volunteer a suggestion that we love our neighbor as ourselves? Can I, please? That's how we approach it oftentimes, because we've forgotten our confidence. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning, as your call to action, that you have your own kitchen table moment. Some of you are, are, are sitting here thinking about yeah, our confidence and, and crisis, our confidence, all that. But I haven't felt that. It's been a long, long time since I felt that. Well, well, maybe it's because Jesus has something for you to do that you aren't doing yet. Because remember when King had his kitchen table moment, he was in the midst of leading the boycott. He was in the depth of the fire. He was experiencing Matthew chapter 5, go home and read it today. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake. He was pursuing righteousness and experiencing persecution. That's when he gets to the kitchen table. So if you haven't experienced that Jesus voice talking to you, maybe it's because God has something for you to do that you haven't done yet. Maybe there's a step on that journey toward justice that you haven't taken yet because you do know what's coming. You know the persecution is on the way. You know the name calling, calling is on the way. You know the sacrifice is on the way. She's like, eh, pass. But what I can tell you from experience 
And as much as I've read and as much as I've studied, the one thing I'm certain of, Jesus meets you in the midst of persecution. The only reason I'm able to stand in this pulpit, do workshops, or go into even hostile places is because I have confidence. Not a confidence in me, not a confidence in my ability, not a confidence in my study, but a confidence in Christ. Because I can tell you from experience that when I have engaged in this work of justice, Jesus has met me in a new way, in a fresh way, in a more personal way than I could ever experience sitting on the sidelines. And I just can't tell you even in words how sweet it is to hear Jesus saying, Lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. I can't tell you about it. You can only really experience it, and you can only experience it if you are on the journey toward justice. So some of you need your kitchen table moment. Find that quiet place. Maybe it's in the kitchen. Maybe it's the living room. Maybe it's the prayer closet. Maybe it's on the walk, but get alone with Jesus. And I promise you that if you follow the path of Jesus, which is narrow and it's hard and it's going to come with uncomfortability and they're going to call, about, call your name and they're going to talk about you. But didn't you know MLK's favorite song was the one we just sang, Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. When you're on that path, Jesus is going to take your hand and lead you on. How can you be confident in the face of injustice is that you don't forget your confidence is in Christ. That's all I got for you, y'all. Amen and amen. Amen.